What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Before we dive into this week's interview, I wanted to give you all a quick heads up that the 2021 edition of CMX's Community Industry Report is now available. We had over 500 community professionals and teams participate in this survey, which aimed to answer questions like, what is the value of community to businesses and what are the most popular metrics used for measuring community? We looked at the impact of COVID-19 on communities and virtual events, and we dove into how community teams are investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for the first time gathered data on the representation of different races and ethnicities in the community industry itself. There are loads of interesting insights in this report, and you can download it all for free today. Just head to cmxhub.com. Again, that's cmxhub.com, and you can download the report there. All right, let's dive into today's interview. Today's interview is with Sarah Leary, the co-founder of Nextdoor, and today she's a venture partner at Unusual Ventures. This is an incredible episode where we go deep into the story of starting Nextdoor, how she had to roll up her sleeves to get those first members in there, build engagement, figure out what works with the community before scaling it up to almost every neighborhood in the country. It's an incredible story. She's one of the most experienced and practical community builders that I've ever spoken to. Every time I speak to her, I walk away with dozens of insights that I I can apply to my work. You're going to love it. We also dive into all of the different kinds of things she's thinking about as an investor now, investing into community-driven companies, what she looks for in those companies, how she thinks about the measurable value of community, where community sits within the organization. Incredible insights in this one. Let's dive in. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It is an honor. I've been looking forward to this for some time and congratulations on your podcast and everything you have going on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you were one of the first people I originally pitched on on this podcast idea backstage at CMX Summit in 2019. And you were like, yes, that's a great idea. You should do it. And I was like, okay, Sarah said I should do it. I'm going to do it. No brainer. It still took me a little while, but then I did it. Well, that was back when we used to be able to meet in person and hang out backstage. Um, so that was all the way back in 2019. But, yeah, you know, since then, I think obviously a lot has been going on in the world. But most importantly, I think the world has woken up to the power of community. And I feel like it has really taken off in the last 18 months or so. And uh, it's exciting to see because... I think that there have been people who have been working on this and talking about it like yourself for years, if not, you know, a decade plus. And um, people are starting to tune in and really want to understand it. And they realize that there's a there's a group of people who understand how to build these things. And there's even fewer people who understand how to coach other people how to do that. And you know how to coach people and how to build community. So the world needs more of you right now. Yeah, it's it's really been surreal to watch. Like, and I've been like banging the drum of communities of future business for a long time. And now that it uh, it feels like it's come true, it's it's almost like the dog who caught the car. I'm just like, wait, what? Like, what really it's happening what how why 
What? Now you're all listening to me. You have everyone's yeah, attention. What, what do I do now? <laughs> yes. I got an idea. Write a book. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. That's awesome. Why, why do you think, as someone else who's been working in the community-driven business world for a very long time, why do you think now, like, why is this happening now after we've been saying, you know, for the last 10 years that it was important? It's a great question. I, I think that many of the events over the course of the last three to four years have kind of brought it home. And much of this, you know, the seeds were planted in the late 90s, if not earlier, with the the introduction of the internet and broadly available set of information. And I think in the beginning, people were primarily using the internet to find information, right? You think about Yahoo as being iconic of that first wave. Then there was a move around e-commerce, right? Amazon kind of represents that. And over time, you had some of these nascent groups that were connecting not just information, but connecting people and the, and the conversations that they have. And certainly social media has has played a big role in bringing that to the forefront, good, bad, and indifferent, right? But we're seeing when human beings are connected over the internet and being able to form you know, connections and, and create conversations and collaborations that previously were impossible, that that leads to, to interesting things, most of it good. Some of it has been challenging as we've seen in the last few years, but um, it's now becoming just not a thing that you do on the side, but a mainstream part of of almost everyone's life is is how they connect and communicate with other people who have shared interest of theirs. And I think part of what's happening is that that was used primarily in people's personal lives and, and their friendships and their family members and maybe an area that they had interest in, but it's now even permeating parts of people's uh, professional life and, and businesses are now recognizing that this is a key part of how you build a relationship with your customers and whether that's on the consumer side of the business or it's on the enterprise side in the B2B side or business to business selling. So I just think it's become something that we're a lot more comfortable with, but it's probably taken 20 years to get here. Mm. Yeah, I kind of think about it as like it, it's been this trend of customers becoming more powerful over time. If you, you can go back to the Industrial Revolution and customers didn't have any power because there's no real way for them to communicate. And then as communication grew and the internet grew, you saw companies have to start to care what customers were saying to each other. So we saw like customer service become a thing when that wasn't a thing. We saw customer success become a thing when that wasn't a thing. Even the CMO is like a relatively recent position and department. There weren't chief marketing officers before. And it's like now we've just kind of culminated into the ultimate way to build trust with customers and empower them, which is community. I think that's right on, right? There's now a two-way dialogue. It used to be just a broadcast, a one-way monologue where companies would share their information, their point of view, and customers couldn't really easily respond and they couldn't respond in mass to to a company. And that has all changed thanks to technology. Right. So you created or co-founded one of the ultimate community platforms and ultimate spaces where people were finding that personal connection on, on a local level, on a neighborhood level with Nextdoor. 
your story of starting next door is one of my favorites to share because it's just such a good example of how hard it is to get a new platform or a new community off the ground and and how founders need to just basically roll up their sleeves and 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 do the hard work of getting people together in the early days way before it ever starts to kind of you know hit that organic place that people hope to get to and what they think about when it's when you think about community you think about oh yeah everyone's just showing up and participating and engaging but they don't realize how like how much legwork it takes to get to that point um so i'd love if you could just share what were those first couple years like at Nextdoor and how did you get that initial community off the ground it's a great question and it's something that for folks that have worked on community uh, they toil for years in those early stages. And more often than not, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that community. Wow, congrats. Like, if, I feel like it was an overnight success. You're like, yeah. <laughs> overnight. Uh, it, took a, it took a decade oh. to get there. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I think that the story for Nextdoor in, in, in some ways goes all the way back to the one of the first um internet companies I worked on, uh, ePinions, which was one of the first platforms where anyone could write reviews about products and services, right? And so that was back when people didn't even know what UGC, user-generated content, stood for. And um, and so we learned a lot of important hard lessons from, from that experience about building reputation, building trust, building real identity, creating high quality content, creating feedback loops, all these pieces that we we learned. And that's going back to 1999. And from there, a core part of our team at Nextdoor came out of the Opinions experience. Nir Avtolio is one of the co-founders of Opinions and uh, my co-founder at Nextdoor. And, and so we started really with the team first and just we understood community and how to build it. And then we looked around and we're like, well, let's think about the communities that matter to us in, in our current lives. And at the time we were in our 30s, settling down, putting down roots. And while you had the ability to, to communicate with people all over the globe thanks to Facebook. You had an easy way to connect with people professionally thanks to LinkedIn. You didn't have an easy way to connect with the people who lived right down the street from you. And so that was kind of the light bulb. And and then pretty soon thereafter, we all went, oh no, this is going to be so hard. You've got to build all these hyper-local communities. And yet we felt like there was real value in being able to build a grassroots community at the neighborhood level and do it at scale. And if you could do that, that that was worthy of putting in the hard work to make it happen. But as you kind of uh, are hinting at, planting those seeds of community are not is not something that you can do overnight. The f- famous line from Field of Dreams, like, if you build it, they will come, is just not true. Um, you can plant the seeds, but you've got to nurture it and, and, and turn over the soil and water it and cultivate it. And in the in the early stages of building any community, and this was true with with Nextdoor, you've really got to do the the hard, heavy lifting of nurturing a community. And sometimes I use the analogy of if you're hosting a party, 
and you know you you want to get everything ready for the party so you you clear out the space maybe you put out some nice food some nice drink you invite people to show up but there's always this awkwardness in the beginning of a party if people don't know each other initially where they're there and they're like well i don't know how to start the conversation and as a good host it's your job to really go over and say david i I want you to meet jenny you two both love talking about you know, gardening, and you kind of start the conversation and hopefully you can step away and allow them to continue the conversation because there's another group of people who have just shown up at the door and you want to get them going. And all of a sudden, if you've done this enough times as a good host, there's a buzz in the room and people are just naturally having conversations. And and I think for for those of us who have built community, even though you're, you have ambition to maybe build something that is going to serve millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, in the very beginning, it starts just like it would start in a small group setting when you're hosting a party where you're just trying to get the conversation going. And so the things you got to think about are, well, what's the setting that I'm trying to create? Who am I inviting to the party? What is it that they have in common and how can I get the conversation started? And so in the case of, of Next Door, we were starting with a very small community, your neighborhood. And what we ended up doing was rolling up our sleeves and in many cases uh, driving out to meet people or talking to them on the phone and finding that person in the neighborhood who was jazzed about helping to form a online community for their neighbors. Mm. And that was really important. You, you just started in one neighborhood, We right? started in a single neighborhood in Menlo Park, the Loreline neighborhood. I will forever be grateful to them. And uh, they were willing to be really our guinea pigs. And, um, right. and so think about that. There's like over 200,000 neighborhoods in the United States, and we started with a single neighborhood. And uh, we drove down there, we met with folks in the community, explained to them what we were trying to do, and they said, okay, we're willing to be your, your test pilot website for our neighborhood for for your website. What did that look like in practice? Like, what do you mean you just drove down and talked to people? Like, how did, who, who did you talk to? How did you find those first people? Well, we reached out uh, to someone who lived in the community who we knew who said, well, I'm happy to introduce you to other folks. And there was a homeowners association in that neighborhood. And so ah, they had a monthly okay. meeting and we were invited to come in and tell people about what we were doing. And uh, we, we drove down, we walked in with our own monitor, we had um, a little demo to show them of what we wanted to do with the website. And at the end of it, uh, they said yes. And so we handed out flyers to them. Uh, we offered to come down and actually walk the neighborhood and go door to door to get everyone in the neighborhood signed up to use it. And so you literally were knocking on people's doors. <laughs> exactly. Wow. What I find interesting is like getting a neighborhood or getting, in this case, a community off the ground, you really want to understand who are your earliest users. And so mm-hmm. it may seem like, wow, Sarah, that sounds really unscalable. And, and I think I think one of the most important things when you are building a community is, one, don't be afraid to do the unscalable things because you that's how you learn. That's how you figure it out. And then the right. second piece is that period of time of actually having to knock on the door, pitch the idea, you know, handle any of the questions that might come up was the most valuable 
set of insight that you could get in terms of building out the product. Mm. And so what ends up happening is, yes, you're having to do these unscalable things. You're basically doing outreach marketing, but you're also doing primary product research to really understand your community that you're serving. Who are the early adopters? Who are the people who they're trying to bring into the community? What are the questions that they have? And all of that is a research effort to understand how to better build what the norms of the community should be, right. things that are going to be the starting conversations that you're going to encourage people to to do in the beginning, right. and then what features you're going to add into the product. And so that initial Petri dish, if you will, in that first neighborhood was very, very important because we could watch what types of conversations were happening. And pretty quickly, We'd get people on the platform and then someone would say, what do we do next? And and that's where we would have to jump in with conversation starters. And we would have people ask, like, I've got 20, 30 people on here. What do I do now? And I mean, you've seen this again and again. You have to coach people on how they should be using the community. And that's by... You have to tell them how to participate. Yeah, to model the behavior. And so we would give them some suggestions on on how to get the conversation going. And pretty quickly you learned, okay, well, what would be helpful is you want to get a dialogue going. So ask an open-ended question that multiple people can answer. And when you make the ask, make it something personal, right? So someone, for example, was looking for a tutor uh, and we said, well, you could just ask for a math tutor, but tell the story. Like, why do you need a math tutor? Who is going to take advantage of this, right? And of course, it was someone's 12-year-old son, and he was having trouble with some part of math. And just tell the story, because Mm. that is what is going to compel someone to want to be helpful. I love that. And you start sharing. That's so true, just to call that out. Like, I, I see this all the time in communities. People just, like, ask a question, and and it just kind of flops. But whenever people share you know, just even a little bit of context about why they're asking it, where they're coming from, why this is a struggle for them or important to them. It just gets such a more meaningful and larger response from people in communities. Who humanize it, right? This is, and one of the most powerful things that we saw on Nextdoor is that when a neighbor basically humanized their, their need and asked for help, they got an overwhelming number of people who were eager to be supportive and provide answers and to chip in and help, right? And so totally. it's it's that human element. And when we figured that out, we're like, wow, there's there's so much potential here for us to be able to help to connect neighbors and uh, to help them in their times of big needs and small needs. But you have to model that behavior. We have to model that behavior from the get-go. Totally. I'm curious, did you learn anything about like who was that ideal founding member? Like who are those people that were like down to join this brand new platform and, and, and drive that? I think every community you have those early adopters. And in our case, they were the founding members. They ended up being the folks in the neighborhood who raised their hand and said, I want to be the first person to bring next door into into our community. And there were some profiles, like we ended up developing personas over time. But, and I think you you will appreciate this, 
there would be times where maybe you'd go to a community event and you would uh, talk about next door and people would come up afterwards and be like, oh, this sounds great. This sounds great. I'm so excited to bring it to my neighborhood. And over time, you learned to look for the people who didn't just say those words, but actually followed up with action. Yeah. And so, right. yeah, there were there were some profiles that emerged, but more often than not, I always would leave a gathering like that and say, I want to see who follows up tomorrow, who really goes beyond just the words and does the work. And that's not always the flashiest person in the room. And, and so what I was looking for was actual actions that backed up that commitment over uh, many days in a row. And at that point, you're like, okay, this person is really motivated and they want to put their name on this community. Mm. And these are people who tend to do it not for the fame or fortune, right? They're, they're doing it because they get some value out of being seen by their fellow community members as being a contributor. And that's something that I think you can only really validate based on actions that they've taken. Yeah, absolutely. So I imagine, so you build up engagement in this first neighborhood, tested, iterated, identified people who are really good fit, it grew, and then I guess the next step is, okay, how do we add a second neighborhood and start mm -hmm. growing it from there? In the first five months, we had 10 neighborhoods. And each one of them, we were rolling out and testing more of what worked. And each time we got better at automating the process. I mean, in the very beginning of Nextdoor, if I were talking to you about bringing Nextdoor to your community, I was on the phone with you hand-drawing the neighborhood boundaries. Uh, we were coming up with the email that you were going to send out to your fellow neighbors to invite them to join next door, or we were working on a flyer and sending it out. And I was sending you a list of here are five topics that might be good things to use as conversation starters in your, your neighborhood. And over the course of the year, we expanded from one neighborhood to 10 neighborhoods to eventually about 170 neighborhoods. We did them in 24 different states in the in the United States because we wanted to make sure we weren't just doing this in the Bay Area, that we were testing it in, in other places. And uh, each time we were trying to take the, the non-scalable hand-holding things that we were doing in the very beginning of Nextdoor and we were trying to build them into the product, into the guidelines, into the norms, and trying to train these founding members who could act as ambassadors in their own neighborhood, bringing next door to their, their fellow neighbors. Um, and then at that point, a year later, we launched. So we spent an entire year in private beta testing and building it out and iterating before we opened it up to the rest of the, the country. And fast forward today, uh, you know, 11 years later, and we're at over 250,000 neighborhoods everywhere in the United States and in 11 other countries uh, across the globe. So we're just at a point now where we know how to spin these up. We know how to identify people and how to get the conversation going. But it all started in the, that single neighborhood and the next five or 10 neighborhoods before we figured out a system that could create grassroots community at scale. That's fascinating. I think like the hardest part for a lot of community professionals, for one is like, I think just having that mentality 
taking their time in that first iteration and that first beta. I think there's always a inclination to get things up and running and launch as big as possible from day one. But I think they missed that opportunity to really learn and do that research. Right? Like people think of founding members as, yeah, we're just trying to build engagement and get people bought in. But really, it's all about learning at that stage and figuring out the formula that really works and resonates before you ever kind of flip that switch into scale mode. You can just do so much more in a small community where you know the participants and you can iterate and learn. Uh, that becomes much more difficult when you have a platform that it's open to anyone and you don't know who's on the platform. Totally. And, and to this day, those early founding members still have my cell phone number. Yeah. And, um, Do you still get texts from them? I, I, I have. From time, I've, I've trained them that there's faster ways to get uh, the help <laughs> that they need. But but I obviously have a relationship with those those folks. And right. really understanding their core motivations and, and what uh, was exciting to them was incredibly helpful to us uh, in those early days to just understand how do we innovate and how do we build this platform at, at scale. What were the biggest bottlenecks of things that wouldn't scale that you had to figure out how to automate? Drawing neighborhood boundaries by hand is mm. ridiculous, obviously. <laughs> and so I think one of the biggest pieces of technology that we spent time working on in that year of private beta was figuring out how to draw the neighborhood boundaries, how to get our users to draw the boundaries. Because the reality is, I might be able to draw the boundaries around my neighborhood in San Francisco, but I certainly don't know it in Kansas City or Nashville, Tennessee, or like right. almost anywhere else in the in the world. And so that expertise is really in the minds of of the users. And so we wanted to be able to create a way to capture that really important canon of, of information. Um, and, and that was a part that we just, you had to work on building a mapping platform and do it in a smart way and a whole set of rules that we learned over time how to, how to build into a platform that would allow that user-generated input to be collected and utilized on the platform. Yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of the consistent thing I see across communities, whether it's Nextdoor or Wikipedia or any of these platforms. It's just like you do things yourself by hand. And then the way it scales is, yeah, there's there's going to be a technology component to it, but it's generally like, how do you give the community members the tools to do it themselves? Absolutely. And you have to find a way to do that in a way that will lead to uh, high quality. So one of the things that we did in the early days of, of Nextdoor was we're trying to find that founding member, right? And that person who was going to bring Nextdoor to their community. And when they came in, we asked them to fill out a application. A lot of friction in the, in the beginning of the process. And that was in some ways intentional because we were trying to find the right person in the community to be really the ambassador of, of Nextdoor in that neighborhood. And they would, they'd be asked like, why do you want to bring this to your neighborhood? And they would also be asked to provide the name of the neighborhood and to draw the neighborhood boundaries. Well, if you couldn't do those things, you were going to have a hard time getting through that screen. And even once they got through all of that, we then gave them 21 days 
to recruit nine other members to join their next door community. So I think I went through this process and I did not pass for the, for the mission <laughs> you the right in San person. Francisco. But, yeah. but this goes back to that principle, which is people can say, oh, I'm the right person to bring next door to the community. And what we were really trying to find out is, okay, well, then can you do it? And so if you can't get nine other people on the platform, 10 was like the initial set that we thought you needed to have, then really someone else should be should have the opportunity to be the founding member. And this was just one way that we were trying to get over the cold start problem, right? The empty bar problem that I think a lot of communities have, which is, well, I could get someone into the community, but there's nothing for them to do because there's no other members. And so for us, we just wanted to get to that point is how do we at least get the neighborhood to 10 people? And then obviously you want it to grow from there. But with 10 people, you could start having a conversation and those people could then help and contribute to getting the word out to fellow neighbors to join them. I'm curious how you apply that mentality to trust and safety as something that I know like during your, you haven't been on Nextdoor for a while, but during your time there, there were issues with trust and safety at different points with Nextdoor. And I mean, it's it's like such a focal point of conversation with all these new social platforms that are coming out where it's like, now it's like non-negotiable. If, if you're not thinking and investing in that from day one, you know, the, the bar is just set a lot higher now. So how did you think about maintaining quality, distributing control to community members in a way that would still ensure a, a safe community for, for all the participants? David, as, as you know, trust and safety is actually important from day one. And the only way that people are going to feel comfortable contributing on a community platform is if they feel some level of, of safety and they can trust that it's going to be a fun and enjoyable experience. And so from the very beginning, you need to have very clear community guidelines You need to have ways for people to report content or behavior that is in violation of those community guidelines. And in our case, we also felt strongly that you needed to have local folks that were living in these communities to be able to play a role of reviewing content and providing some feedback, right? And so these were first, it was the founding members, and then it became a a group of leads. And that was important from day one. I think the other thing that's that's important to just recognize is communities are dynamic and they are changing at, at all times. And so what you do in year one or year three on the platform, it might make sense. But as the community hopefully grows and becomes more active, you have a lot more participants. And just the odds are at some point there's going to be some activity that goes against the community guidelines. Not to mention that the guidelines sometimes change. What is uh, appropriate behavior can change over the course of year to, to year. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that my my biggest piece of feedback here is that, yes, you have to create these, these systems in place, but you also have to have a team of people who are actively monitoring and engaging in the conversation because as the community evolves and grows, 
you have to evolve the guidelines sometimes, and you definitely have to evolve the tools that are available to folks. And I think all too often you see people come in and say, okay, we, we put these guidelines into place. We put these tools into place. Check, check, check. It's like a feature that they say I'm done and I can move on to something else. And the reality is, is that it's a living, breathing organism. It's part of what makes it so dynamic. And so you need a team of people that are actively monitoring it. They are developing more tools. They are adjusting as things are happening. And far too often, I think, folks will invest in community for some period of time and then they'll just leave one community manager you know, on it and then they move on to other parts of the product and that community manager no longer has a product development team to help them continue to evolve the tool set. And that's something that I think every early stage company, every early stage community goes through this because we never have enough resources to do all the things that we want to do in a company. And and so you can be like, oh, check, we've launched it. It's now off and running. It's great. But uh, lo and behold, within months, you're going to have to continue to evolve the tool set based on how the community is using the platform. I, th- I think one of the things that, that we learned is we needed to be willing as, as there was some content that was coming on the platform that we that we didn't like that wasn't uh, in in concert with our community guidelines of making everyone feel included. We had to make a hard decision, and this is going back to 2014, 2015. We had to make some hard decisions about maybe putting more friction into the process to get people to stop, slow down, and think before they were posting. And if you go back to 2014, 2015, you know, that's at a point where like snap is like, just snap and post whatever you want. And we went very much against the grain at that point and started putting in these like, slow down and think before you post. And and I really credit um, uh, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, who is a professor down at Stanford in, in social science. And she basically was like, if you want to get people to to not play to their their ingrained stereotypes, you're going to have to get them to stop and think uh, before they they take action. And and if you fast forward to today, like a lot of that now has become much more standard uh, practices. But if you went back to 2014, 2015, um, that was not an obvious choice to make. But for our community, it was. Frankly, it's still not commonplace. You still see most social platforms and new community tools, you know, optimized for reduced friction to get people to create more. You you don't see too often any sort of like information before you post or things that pop up to like kind of guide you and remind you of the guidelines. Like we're starting to see that. I think Facebook groups like just added that. Obviously, Twitter has been doing it with labeling certain content that they view as unverified in one way that, or that's another. That's on the back, right. So that's like pre-consumption, but still not pre-creation, right? Like it, they're still not informing how you should be thinking about things before you create on a platform. And that, that's right? an important distinction, right? We started to put it at the point of creation versus waiting to uh, moderate it afterwards. And and that was a that was a major major shift but i think it's it's an important one and it's one where you're saying i care more about quality than i do about just sheer quantity right it's also important to think about like who you're putting in the position of 
of moderation as well, because it's tempting to think like, well, we can just put moderators in place of all of these spaces and they're, they'll be able to manage it and apply the guidelines. But, you know, who are those moderators and what are their biases? What are their stereotypes that will ensure that they are being inclusive of all the people in their community? I agree. It's a, it's a big part of it. And you need to have ways for for folks to be able to flag when something's not being administered in the proper way. And I think that that has also been been learning. But this is all part of making community mainstream and building in controls to to get um, people to act you know, the best versions of themselves. Yeah. That's a good segue into kind of your next chapter here. So you, a couple of years ago, stepped away from active duty at Nextdoor, and now you're an investor and you're investing in community-driven companies. And now, as you said, communities somehow in the mainstream like never before, and everyone's launching new community platforms. And this concept of community-driven business is, it's like the hot new thing. Everyone, every, Everyone's claiming to be community-driven now. I'm curious, with everything that you've learned from what you built at Nextdoor and how you know better than any other founder or most founders how hard it is to build true community and build these systems in a way that's scalable and inclusive and and meaningful, what are the things that you're looking for today in companies to know whether they're actually community driven like how do you call bullshit on the ones that are just using the 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 term but aren't actually practicing it you know it is so interesting because you'll you'll see people who will add it as a bullet point in a slide you know and then we'll add community and i'm like whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. community is something that takes time to build that is built on the back of authentic interactions with your users or your customers. And if you're not doing that from the very beginning, I am highly skeptical that you will be able to add it. I can't tell you how many times I have people who are working maybe in some field. Let's let's pick one that's hot right now, fintech. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So we want to add community. I'm like, okay, well, why? <laughs> and um, who are the groups of people that are going to be your first users and the first adopters of this community? And who on your founding team is really going to own that going forward? If they can't answer basic questions about that, then it's a pretty good sign that uh, this is just window dressing and it's not uh, real and authentic. But you, you really need sponsorship at the highest level of a company who is going to sit there and say, this is a core pillar of what we are trying to build and I'm going to own it. I'm going to champion it, not just for a quarter or for a year, but like for as long as I'm here. And and having a real team of people who are the the voice of that community in all decisions. And for me, I look for that to be pretty well baked in with the product direction not just something that is is used as a marketing tool, if you will. And, and that's a important distinction in my mind is that are you building it into the core product or is it just a pre-sale, post-sale type of of tool? Right. And What uh, do you mean by building it into the product? Like what does that look like in practice in your mind? To me, it's about is there someone in the product team who feels some 
responsibility for meeting the needs of the community. And sometimes that means building it literally into the product, right? So mm -hmm. if you're building, you know, now community is not just being used in consumer products, right? It's using an enterprise. You think about an open source product. Well, you know, core to that is the community, right? The, the product doesn't exist without the community supporting that. So, so that's one example, like, okay, how baked into your product roadmap is the open source approach to things and, and that should be central to it. The other part is sometimes you, you have a company for whom it is a little bit more supporting, but it's so important that it's actually part of the product organization internally in the company. And the reason why that's important is as things come up in the community, are they actually being addressed in the product? Because there is nothing more frustrating for a community of users if they are spending time and investing their thoughts, providing feedback on the product, and they never see progress, and they never see the product roadmap kind of adapting to the feedback that they're giving. That's one of the um, surest ways to alienate a, a community. And you look at a company like Salesforce, right, and what they built with Dreamforce. Mm. That was a diehard community of people who were living and breathing the Salesforce product. And there was no way Mark Benioff was going to allow that group of people to gather and to provide feedback and not have it become core to the product roadmap for the engineers working on the core Salesforce product, right? And, and that type of buy-in at the CEO level was essential to, to Salesforce building not just a robust community, but a better product and uh, you know, a great company. So as an investor who's, you know, I'm sure you're looking very deeply into the actual numbers of the business, where do you see the measurable impact of community and how, you know, if, if a community professional or community team's listening to this, you know, what advice would you have to them to make sure that it's it's not just this this cultural investment, but it's also a practical investment that has clear ROI? I'm so glad you asked that question because so often I think community gets put in the corner and it can't be quantified. And I think one of the things that we're seeing again and again right now is looking at growth as being an important part of any business's lifeline, especially these early stage companies. And when I see a company coming in and they're basically talking about how they're going to grow, and if you look at the numbers and you see, wow, you're spending a lot of money to grow, you're basically doing performance marketing to, to grow. While there may be a role for that in a company, if that number in terms of percentage is getting much over 25, 50%, you start to scratch your head. And what you really want to see is that organic growth in users, customers, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to get. And usually that is tied to the quality of your community and the ability for that community to create positive word of mouth referrals uh, to get people to start uh, to expand the usage of the product. And, and that to me is a way to capture some of the value that a community has in terms of translating to one of the most important metrics of an early stage company, which is growth. And so I look at what percentage of your growth is coming from organic sources. 
And that usually, and then you say, okay, well, why are those people referring you? And at some point you're going to get back to, well, it has to do with the strength of the community that we have and how they're telling their fellow, it could be friends, it could be other small businesses, it could be other people who are looking to build security infrastructure in an enterprise platform, like you name it. But if what's happening is that people are nudging their friends and their coworkers or their peers in other companies to start using a product, that is a very strong sign of endorsement that people are meeting a need and it's meeting the quality bar. And they're even going one step further and they're making, they're putting their own personal reputation behind the product and telling others about it. Totally. Have you seen any companies do a really good job of measuring referrals like this? Because word of mouth is historically really hard to track. I think that there's a fair bit of people that are now looking at this on the enterprise side of things in terms of referrals, right? And so Mm -hmm. we're seeing this at Unusual Ventures. In fact, we have hired someone full-time at the firm to help portfolio companies to invest in building community. Well, and just community that they're focusing on building the seeds of community of nurturing that. And they are primarily right now focused on enterprise companies. Right. And helping them think about how can they create a community of users who are really evangelists for the platform and nurture that. Because, as you know, if you're trying to make an enterprise software decision, One of the first things you're going to do is pick up the phone and call your friends at three other firms and be like, how are you guys solving this problem? Totally. And that's a very tight-knit community. You take the open source community, like they're doing this all the time. Uh, And they're not just saying it, they're actually building on top of the the software that is being offered. And so going in and, and actually saying, how many evangelists do you have out there? How big is your community? Is that contributing to sales? We're still in the early stages of being able to to measure it exactly like this person brought these sales per se, mm-hmm. but you can normally see it at the macro level of just what is your sales motion look like mm-hmm. and how much of that is generated organically and how much of that are you having to spend money to create new leads. Totally. And if you start to see people having to spend a lot of money to create leads, and I really look at that as a percentage overall, then you got to stop and say, wait, why isn't there more word of mouth and referral that's happening? Because what you're looking for is a more efficient flywheel to start to be generated. But it doesn't happen overnight. You have to invest in that early on and develop relationships with these users and then arm them with the ability to have a good product that they can go tell their peers and their friends about. And that's where you're going to start to see, it won't happen maybe in the first quarter or the first year, but if you're doing this over a period of time, you're going to start to see 18 to 24 months in uh, more efficiency in your sales cycle. And it's going to translate into a higher degree of growth that is coming at you in more cost-effective ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one way I think about community these days is it's it's kind of like facilitated word of mouth. And so where historically word of mouth would primarily happen in one-on-one conversations and in public social channels and things like that, by building community, by hosting spaces for conversations, you actually can 
see and potentially track word of mouth because it's not happening just on Twitter and in private conversations. It's literally happening in, in spaces that you're hosting. And so you can actually map that back, especially on an enterprise level. If you have, you know, Salesforce set up and you're tracking marketing qualified leads and sales qualified leads, we're seeing this concept of community qualified leads developing where if someone attended your community event, if they've been participating in your community, if they've connected with other members of your community, that's all information that can educate how qualified a lead is and be a touch point in that journey that now you can connect back sales to actual community engagement. I think you can even take that a one step further and start to reward people who are referring other customers, right? So dare I say, gamify the whole uh, word of mouth. But if people feel like they're gaining more credibility and potentially influence because they referred your product to five other companies and now they are invited in to do a product session with the product team to think about the next year Mm -hmm. ahead for the product, all of a sudden they're getting some added carry from from being someone who's an evangelist. And they're only going to do that if you have a great product. So you, you can't use community as a as a band-aid if you if you don't have a good product. Like you have to have a great product. But if you have a great product and you have that community, and you normally those go hand in hand because that community is giving you a lot of feedback along the way. So they're not going to stay being community advocates for you if your product isn't getting better and better and delivering on the needs that they have. Last question, then we'll move into our rapid fire question round. (laughs) Um, I'm curious what your take is on where community should live within the business, because this is a conversation I'm seeing a lot. I'm having a lot. Should it be its own department? Should it live under another department? You already said you think it needs to be invested in from the highest level. So I imagine I know what you're going to say you want to happen, but I'm curious if you think realistically, like the chief community officer role will actually become a unanimous thing in business the same way like CMO has. I think that for certain businesses, it's it's great to have a community uh, officer who's is really leading it across the, the company. But I actually look for where can you get the resources to put the ideas into practice? And so Sometimes that means just embedding it in the product team, mm-hmm. right? So the simple act of having someone who owns community, who's sitting in the weekly or potentially even daily product meetings and constantly raising what the issues are and getting that team to be hyper-responsive to the needs of the community, like that can have a huge impact. I think where things can get really frustrating is if you silo off to the side the community team, and even if you had a chief community officer, if they have no resources, whether that's around marketing or it's around engineering and product and design, to actually improve the experience for the community, that can be really frustrating. So I try and and put the people who are closest to the resources that can affect change. And if the person leading that team is also responsible for community, it's far more likely that the insights that come out of having a robust community are put into action and lead to a better Mm. product over time. Yeah, it's such an interesting trade-off that I have a lot of conversations with community professionals every day. And a lot have been telling me, it's like, look, like, Actually, I just spoke with someone the other day that said they were under 
like customer support. And then they were able to move the team into marketing. And, and this person was just like, oh my God, I have so many, so much more budget and resources now because they're under marketing. And, and it's this tough trade-off because I think a lot of us would say our vision is for a community to be its own department that's like well-funded and staffed and resourced. But there's also just realistically going to be stop gaps to get to the point where um, community is getting that kind of investment on its own without needing to rely on the budget of other departments. And that's why putting it as close to the source, to me, is the short-term solution. I mean, ideally, you would have a chief community officer and they would have their own engineering and product resources totally. to be able to develop their own roadmap. Oftentimes in smaller companies, uh, that's unlikely to, to happen. Totally. And so then my, my second option is, great, put it in the product organization mm -hmm. and force the product team to have to really look at this information and be responsive to it on, on a regular cadence. Love it. All right. Rapid fire question round. Are you ready? I am ready. Born ready. I love it. All right. First question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? I would have to go with Bowling Alone by mm. Professor Robert Putnam. Good it was one. a major inspiration for Nextdoor. We used to actually give it to every new employee at the company when they started. Love it. It's sitting on the shelf behind me. It's a community classic. Next question. What are some industries that you think where you think community is going to become critical that you're looking to invest in? I think the communities that are most interesting right now, I think that um, fintech is very interesting for community because I think for the first time we're going to see investing and managing your finances becoming something that really every adult is taking an active role in and folks need help and support to navigate those. So I'm going to go with fintech as my number one. All right. Sounds good. There's some really fascinating stuff happening in fintech. And if you want to include crypto on that side too, there, there's some really fascinating stuff happening in community there too. I think crypto is super interesting. To me, that's just an alternative asset class, mm -hmm. right? It, it gets a lot of attention right now, but um, you know, frankly, you're seeing a lot of alternative asset classes come to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just getting started. Yeah. This whole thing with like rally and communities being able to create their own coins so members can compensate you. It's, it's getting real wild, but I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get it. I agree. I agree. The virtual goods piece is oh, just yeah. beginning. Yeah. NFTs. Even though it's probably been taking off for years and years in Asia. So we, we have some catching up to do there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next question. What is your wildest community story? All right, I won't tell the full story. R but, rapid uh, version of the story. Yeah, uh, it's called, uh, it was referred to as Opinions Blows Dogs. It was uh, a revolt <laughs> by the community um, at Opinions way back when, when we changed the reward, the monetary reward system and then limited the ability for them to edit uh, reviews. And they decided to make changes to their reviews before we locked them down. And said, we can't change them. Sorry. I'll let you go explore that one. But uh, it was a really important reminder that companies that engage in community-based content creation, you have a shared ownership of that content with the user. Or you have to be even more sensitive to it's their content. You cannot take away their ability to move it about, edit it, change it. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And it reminds me of like Reddit 
admins or mods all deciding to shut down their subreddits when they were upset. Members will find a way to uh, make you listen to them if you don't. Next question, what's a go-to engagement tactic or conversation starter you like to use in your communities? I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but just make a very personal appeal, right? The more you describe a need. So for example, like instead of just asking like, hey, does anyone have a great brunch place, for example, instead tell the story. My mom's coming to town. It's her first time visiting. I'd like to take her to a great brunch place. She's a bit of a foodie. What would you recommend? And then people start telling their own stories. And it's a great way to get the conversation going to make it very human and for people to open up about themselves. And, and that introduces the opportunity for further conversation, which is always the key thing for a conversation starter. Love it. Yep. I'm, I'm definitely going to be sharing that one a lot. I think it, it articulates something that I've learned myself, but haven't heard put into words clearly like that before. So I'm, I'm excited about that one. Thanks for sharing. Who's an up and coming community builder that we should all follow? There's so many of them. Evan Hamilton over at uh, Reddit, I think, is very thoughtful about people's commitment level to a community. He's incredible. He's not up and coming, though. He's an OG. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, I've watched him come up, That's let's awesome. say, and I feel like he's having his day in the sun, which uh, is well-deserved. It's like communities. It's like an overnight success that took years. I was just DMing with him about this exact topic today. So absolutely. We're both I, like, oh my God, it's happening. It's finally happening. I, and I also think uh, Erica Cool from uh, formerly at Salesforce has broken out on her own. And she spent, what, 13 years building the yeah. community at Salesforce. And now she's helping dozens of others uh, be able to capture some of that same magic. And so that's someone who toiled away kind of in the in the background a little bit, uh, who's having totally. having her moment in the sun, which is well-deserved. I'm going to let you off the hook because you named two OGs, but only because you're like the OG OG of community. So for you, it's Are up you and coming. Are you calling me old? No. <laughs> I'm calling you very experienced in community. That's okay. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question really quickly. <laughs> What's a community building technology or app that you think we should all be using? You should be all be using Nextdoor, of course, if you're not already. I, I think one area that I, I see people under-investing in, and it's going to sound a little bit obvious, but um, is getting people to really invest in building out much more robust profiles. I think this is a mm. part of platforms where people, they're kind of perfunctory about them, and yet they are essential in helping people really learn about who else is on the platform. And it creates these opportunities for new connections to be made. And, and it's something that I think people should come back to. It's not just about the content, but tell me something about yourself. How do you want to present yourself? And I'm particularly keen on this because I'm fascinated in the world of how do we go from the online world communities to real world communities. And obviously that was something we thought a lot about at Nextdoor. And I think for people, they want to find kindred spirit, right? They want to find topics on which they can go deeper with people. And so I think profiles is an area that has been somewhat over overlooked and that people should revisit. Is there anyone, like any app that's doing a really good job of that right now? I think very few are actually doing a good job of it. Interesting, I, I invested in a in a company uh, called Contra uh, recently, and they're building a platform for independent workers 
to be able to uh, connect with each other and talk about the work that they're doing and to be able to run their business. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me about them is that here they are creating a marketplace for freelance workers, but they started with community first. Mm. And for them, they're taking the whole idea of like what your profile is, which on LinkedIn, we've really thought about that much more as your resume. But if you're a freelance worker, your resume doesn't really capture what it is that you do better than most other people, right? It doesn't capture your body of work. And so instead, the projects that you work on, the skills that you have, that's at the forefront. And I think that, and then the other piece that they've done, which I think is super interesting, is instead of just having connections with people like you have on LinkedIn, you can link to collaborators, people who you've worked with, right? And so that creates a super interesting network. And it says a lot about the work that you've done, the things you like working on, and who you've worked with. And so that's where, in that context, I think that those profiles are particularly insightful, useful, and unique. That's really cool. It's called Contra? Contra, C-O-N-T-R-A. Like the old uh, video game. It's and it's a beautiful platform. That's cool. You know, I think in part because they're representing uh, freelancers and they themselves were freelancers. It's a product that freelancers will look at and be like, "I'd be proud to be on this platform." Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, one other one you should check out. Eric Martin was just on a show and he talked about wisdom. And so it's like helping people connect with other people who experience something that they've been through before, and their onboarding is really fascinating. It kind of asks like what are you experienced in and then what are you trying to achieve and like what are your goals so it can kind of match people up based on like their actual experience and then where they're trying to grow i feel like this is just such a missed opportunity in every community is like asking them asking a member where can you help others and then mm-hmm. and then what help are you looking for and then being able to match people up around that that's really smart and i think part of what we are learning in this strange last 12 months that we've had in our lives is that people want to be helpful to one another and they're just looking for ways to to make that connection and asking for help sometimes needs a little nudge Mm -hmm. absolutely all right just a couple more all right what's a community product you would love to invest in if someone built it today if anyone can build a platform that can help this country unite across political lines Mm. i would I would probably do more than just invest, to be honest. (laughs) I I think it's one of our our great challenges, um, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Mm. I'd be very interested to see someone try to build something on a community tech side to solve that. I know people working on it on a a human level in the most hands-on way, but it would be cool to see that on a, take that and apply it in a more scalable way. That would be a game changer. Mm. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? I don't feel very weird, David. I when I when I think about this question, I'm like, ah, jeez. Um, I'm a big <laughs> Red Sox fan, so there's that's um, weird. There's <laughs> there's a son I'm a New of, Yorker, so here we go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a son of Sam Horn community that I think people find that it's weird that I spend time on. The other one that comes to mind is. Um, a foodie community of uh, Food 52, if you know that one. Um, mm-hmm. But yep. I don't think that I those agree. are very weird. Those aren't that weird, Sarah. <laughs> you need, you need I guess to get it's out weird there. that it's not very weird. Yeah. yeah. Your lack of weirdness is what's so strange. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll find you a weird community. If, if you listen to this podcast, send, uh, send your invites to Sarah to join your weird community. Please. <laughs> 
All right, last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed today and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? Hmm. There's so many things. Um, I, I think the one that kind of is resonates with me is um, is this idea that like the most treasured things in life must be earned. Hmm. Uh, there's no shortcut, and and often the harder they are to achieve, the more they will be treasured. And I think that's true in your personal life. I think it's true in your professional life. I certainly think it's true in community, right? When you think about building community, it's hard. It takes a long time. It has unclear ROI in the beginning, right? There's so many things that are challenging about it, and yet you can't take shortcuts and you can't be inauthentic about it, otherwise it doesn't work. Mm. And yet in the end, when you can step back and look at it and like it's actually working, that is something that is is incredible. And and I um, I saw a story that came out recently about um, next door, and it was down in Texas. And sure enough, there was someone who was in a situation where they really needed a vaccine, and they went to next door, and they asked their neighbors, most of whom they had never ever met, and said, "Look, I'm." I have to go in for surgery and I need to get a uh, vaccine before I can go in. And um, I can't get one, can't get an appointment. Does anyone have any suggestions? Thinking that they might say, oh, try this website or try this. And instead, within an hour, there was a fellow neighbor who they had never met said, you know what? I have a vaccine shot. It's at 1030. You need it more than I do. It's yours if you can make the appointment. Wow. And when that happened, and for me, having started the work on Nextdoor back in 2010 to fast forward 11 years and to see like what the germ of the idea that we in, we started with one neighborhood back in 2010 to be used by so many people, but I think most importantly to be able to be such a resource uh, for someone in a time of extreme need before you're know, getting a vaccine before they're going in for surgery. Um, potentially is life-saving. And and that's just an amazing feeling to be a part of something that the seeds that you planted so long ago are, are growing into big redwoods today. And um, you know the vision that you have to actually see it come to fruition. Uh, and even at a time when I'm not at the company on a daily basis anymore, like that's just incredibly rewarding. And I, I just... I think that if you can live a life where you get to work on things that have impact like that and extend beyond your direct day-to-day involvement, um, that's that's an incredibly rewarding life. Very well said. I love that. And I love it too because it's a good framework for making decisions and, and planning with community as well. It's almost like if if what you're trying to plan feels too easy, it's actually probably not what you want to do in the in the earliest days, right? Like it's probably not going to be enduring, right? It's like if it feels really hard, that's a good sign. That means you're building something real. Yeah, and you look, you look for signs that it's working along the way. It's not like there's no signs for ten years, but if you are willing to put in the time and to put in the plant those seeds 
and continue to nurture it and build a platform that can scale, like it's amazing what can happen. I love it. Sarah, this was amazing. There's so much gold in this episode. I'm I'm gonna have to go back through it and just remember all the insights. This was incredible. Just wanna express gratitude for you and, and everything that you've done in this space, the work that you've done and you continuing to share your lessons You've set such a great path for other community builders and other community entrepreneurs. And every time I talk to you, I walk away with like multiple incredible insights that I want to share with others. So thank you for all the work that you've done and for continuing to show up in the CMX community and chat with me and share all of your wisdom. You're too kind, uh, David. Um, I likewise enjoy our conversations all the time, and I am incredibly inspired by the work that you're doing to codify and capture this information that really is designed to help other people to embrace the power of community. And um, very grateful for the work that you've done and the great spirit with which you do it. It's uh, it's fun to watch, and uh, I'm cheering for you. Thank you. It's hard work, but that's how I know it's the right thing to do. <laughs> exactly. See, treasured things in life must be earned. There you go. Absolutely. Um, and lastly, where can people go to follow you and continue to learn from you? I am on Twitter at Sarah Leary. You can also check out unusual.vc. Um, like that's, that's where you can go see more about the things that we're investing in at Unusual Ventures and uh, looking forward to hearing what people are working on and hopefully getting a chance to see their exciting new companies that embrace community from day one. Amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.